Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Hellraiser Podcast. Let me introduce myself. My name is Peter, and with me is my good friend Phil. Hello. And we're going to be talking about all different aspects of the Hellraiser world. We will be exploring the outer reaches of <laughs> hell raising. Exactly. On this first podcast, we're just going to be talking about the first film, the Hellraiser film from 1987. And on a future podcast, we are going to take you through each film, one at a time. We'll do a podcast per film. And then we have other things we're going to be talking about. Clive Barker, the man who started it all off, his work, his novels and short stories. And we'll also be talking about spin-offs, like the comics and fan fiction, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, anything I think that's connected with Hellraiser in any way whatsoever, we want to talk <laughs> about it exactly. and discuss it and basically just give you some of our thoughts on it. So apologies if uh, some of this is a little bit jumbled up, but we're just going to dive right in there and talk and just put our thoughts and feelings out there about this amazing series. Right, so we'll start with the first Hellraiser film. So the film is just called Hellraiser. It was released in 1987. And we'll talk a bit about the story. There might be those people joining us who haven't ever seen the first Hellraiser film. Shame. Shame on you. You are idiots. Yeah. You must immediately pause this, go and watch it, and then come back to this and press play. But for anyone who isn't sure of which one the first one was, or gets confused over which one's which, the first film is a very basic story, really. It opens with Frank Cotton opening a supernatural puzzle box in a big empty house and being dragged down into hell. It then switches to his brother Larry moving into the same house with his wife Julia. And we also meet Kirsty, who is Larry's daughter from a previous marriage. The film is then about Frank's attempt to resurrect himself from hell with the help of Julia, who it turns out he had an affair with just before she married Larry. And this is where the story proper begins. Yeah. So for those people who think about Hellraiser and just picture Pinhead and the other Cenobites, the first film has very little Pinhead in it and the others. Yeah, it's actually more of a kind of story of relationships and like it is very, yeah, it's very family. Much so. It's a family of... drama and the, the Cenobites and the Hell backstory is what it is. It's a, it's a backstory. Yeah, it's like there's so many scenes where it's about a woman yearning Rather well, than, yeah. you know, rather than a monster. And as soon as she discovers that it's Frank upstairs, she vows to do anything to help him return fully because he's not quite fully returned yet. He's all slimy and exposed Skinless. muscles and bone <laughs> things. And the only way to restore him fully is for her to go out and kill people so that Frank can absorb their energy and body and, and make himself whole again. So let's just start at the beginning and have a little chat about the film itself. Uh, the very opening, the first few moments, you get introduced straight away to the, the graphic imagery that we'll be getting to later on, where Frank gets dragged down into hell with chains coming into his flesh and being ripped apart pretty yeah, much. The iconic chains that flash out of the shadows and yeah. really graphically and gruesomely embed themselves in your skin. And uh, those bits, nowadays, it's, it's the close-ups of the latex and chains going into them some people, viewers nowadays, like kids nowadays, pro probably look at that and say, oh, that's a bit dated, that's a bit old, but it still does its job pretty well. I remember when I first saw it, and I'd never seen anything like that. I must confess that I did watch this film at a very young age, so it was a bit shocking for me. Well, my, my first memory of the film isn't seeing it, actually. It's seeing the video 
front the front cover of the video in a um, in a video rental store and not being able to rent it out because I was too young and just yearning to watch it yeah. because the front cover was just a massive picture of Pinhead's head in close up. Yeah, which totally makes you wanna. I mean that the whole film is just constantly promising all this kind of crazy stuff. Yeah, but you don't feel cheated when they're when they're having a scene where it's just two people talking about how their relationships maybe. Well, no, Not because quite as good as it used to be. <laughs> no, because you know what's um, what's just come before, and you know there's something bad's going to happen in the future. So on on that, at the very beginning, when Frank gets dragged to hell, you get all this visceral, crazy hooks and chains and blood everywhere and bits of flesh, and you kind of think, surely the whole film's not going to be like this. <laughs> this is going to be a bit too much of an hour and a half of this, and then all of a sudden it goes back to the house and and the the drama begins, but. That first moment is, is so is so shocking, really. You get a brief glimpse of Pinhead. Back in 87, people had never seen this before. They've obviously seen him on the poster for the movie. I think yeah. he was the main poster, which is another reason why it's surprising how little he's in it. Pinhead's in the first one because he was the main marketing tool. But when Clive, but Clive Barker said when he first made the film, he wasn't expecting Pinhead to get really famous and be the big poster boy for it. Yeah, which, which is, is weird. Yeah, which is such crazy. an iconic image. But maybe that's Clive Barker's brain. Maybe he, yeah. he, he's just full of that. I know, and he he must have known when he when they put the makeup on because he even says the first the scene in the where Kirsty first meets them in the hospital later on is really brightly lit and you can see them very clearly. And I think he had a bit of an argument with his director of photography about how that should be lit because he was told maybe it should be done quite dark so you can't see them properly yeah and he was he was like no i think we should definitely see them because because this is what they are they are horrific and they're bathed in light and i think that's a really good thing because the makeup is so good of the cenobites we'll talk about them properly later on but Mm. it's crazy that he didn't realize that this would be a hugely iconic figure especially well pinhead especially but the others as well because apparently clive barker saw the main villain of the piece as julia and she would be the one who would lead them on to sequels if there were any sequels. Yeah, which is strange. But then you can see the focus of that in the film, in that it's so about her descent and her kind of yeah, enjoying yeah. murdering people and her kind of enjoying, you know, wanting the sex with Frank, which, you know, is yeah, what absolutely. she wants. It's basically her main motivation. Yeah, and, um, and in, in fact, she was a huge part of the second film, the first sequel, so... Mm. So when we get into the family drama then in the film, we've got poor Larry, who's a bit of a wet fish, really. Larry. He seems to have been trodden on. And we've got Julia, who seems completely disinterested. And uh, and then Kirsty turns up, and she's sort of Larry's light of his life, as it were. Mm. His little girl. His little girl, who's not so little anymore. She's no. um, blossomed oh. into quite a lovely young lady, <laughs> as Frank says later on. That's another thing. They are both very beautiful women. Well, exactly. But it is an amazing study in contrast because Julia is so ice queen beautiful. And when she goes out to sort of get men and bring them back, she's got this kind of like slash of red lipstick on Mm -hmm. her face and she's really pale and thin and kind of, you know, kind of weird looking in a way. But she's got and she's got some massive eighties hair going on. Massive eighties <laughs> hair. But but yeah, there's something really like mm and Yeah, and, she's striking. Yeah, and her Whereas the daughter is very She's very conventionally pretty. And she's kind of all American girl 
yeah. you know, there's a few lines in the film where I think she finds it a bit funny that she's in England, if indeed she <laughs> is, because <laughs> <Yeah>. nobody knows. <laughs> no. No, let's talk about that. The film was filmed in England, and a lot of the small parts that were played by English people, the studio had dubbed over by American actors. Yeah. Now, supposedly they did this to make it a bit more accessible to American audiences, mm. but I do think it is a little odd when you see kind of shopkeepers in this very obviously London set place speaking with American accents. Yeah. Well, some people find it quite jarring, and the fact there is no one specific place the film is set in takes them out of the film, which is a shame, really. The podcast. You downloaded it. We came. Let's move on in terms of plot. And Kirsty eventually discovers Frank hiding upstairs with no skin on, and she's not terribly impressed with this, as you can imagine. No. And she ends up stealing the box, the puzzle box, that first got Frank to hell, and she ends up summoning the Cenobites in a hospital and this is our first proper introduction to them we've heard kind of heard who they are and what they do but it's a bit ambiguous as to exactly what they do and they turn up saying she opened the box so they're going to take her to hell and she ends up pleading with them and striking a bargain if if she can present frank to them she tells them that frank's escaped and they say if they can prove it they'll take him instead of her but Which is we, interesting. It, yeah, it is very interesting. Because that implies that they are physical beings. Yeah. They can be tricked. And that they, although they can well, seemingly yeah, appear yeah. whenever they like, they don't know everything. No, no, they're certainly not um, gods. They're not omnipotent beings. They, they can be spoken to. And this is sort of ex- expanded a bit in the second one, where we, we're told that they were once human. But in this one, we're not given any of their backstory at all. They're just these demons. Which I like. Which I like as well, very much. They're these demons from hell, and they are hideous. Should we talk about the Cenobites for a bit? Yeah, let's talk about them, because they're my favourites. Okay, well, we've talked about Pinhead already, but he's not called Pinhead in this first one. When the first film came out, the Pinhead character that we all know today is just credited as lead Cenobite. Mm. So they're definitely called the Cenobites, and they're even referred to that in the in the story. But he's just lead Cenobite. This guy happens to have nails sticking out of his head. Mm. And they were going to be pins originally, I believe. They were, yeah. In the uh, in the short story that they're based that it's based on, or novella that it's based on, the Hellbound Heart, which we'll talk about in a different podcast. They're referred to as I think gold pins, aren't they? Like jeweled pins, yeah, or something. jeweled pins. But they are much more reminiscent of nails yeah i think i think that they said that they tried it with a pin and it got a bit lost in the makeup so they were like oh we'll change it which makes sense yeah because it's much more graphic as well because you can imagine a nail being hammered into someone's head (laughs) yes you You can't don't imagine that later not later (laughs) in some of the later films you don't have to imagine it because (laughs) they show it no you don't but this is certainly a man who's had something horrible happen to him you assume he might have done it himself you don't know at this point yeah, but that's what's great about the Cenobites because it's like rusty nails and the mm, thing yeah. that really gets me about them and their look and their their vibe is that they've got barbed wire, bits of wood, yeah. you know, rusty nails, n- rusty blades. They're sort of not cool or chic, even though no, they are no. very cool, but they're, they're, they really make you think of some horrible derelict grabbing hold of you and kind of putting a broken bottle to your neck or something. They do look, they look dirty. And unclean. They are. But yet there's something fascinating about them. Yeah. 
and that's this is what raises all the questions in my head because you don't know about them you don't know what their what their deal is but then if say for example one of them's got his face ripped open and you can see his teeth and gums and mm -hmm. stuff but is he in pain all of the time is he feeling that all the time and does he love that or is yeah, does he is not question. feel that or in terms of this one let's let's move on then specifics we're talking about the um chatterer the chatterer who in the credits again he's not called chatterer he's just the chattering cenobite and this is the character whose mouth has been completely splayed open to reveal his teeth and gums and he's uh, his teeth are chattering the whole way through and his whole the rest of his head is just a complete mess of scars and scar tissue and yeah he doesn't look like he's got any eyes he's, he, he hasn't got any eyes they've been uh, removed or sewn over or he is given eyes in the second one but that's another story <sighs> but uh, no he's just these it's this mouth, this mouth that's been ripped apart, and there are tiny little hooks and chains. Yeah, they're little chains little that keep chains his sort of, of mouth open. Pulling his mouth up, and it's yeah. horrific to look at. It's, the, I think it's the most horrific thing I've I've ever seen in film in terms of makeup. That's a, the nastiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, because you can really you can understand that. Anybody yeah. watching that can understand what that feels like. It's so clearly a human that's been messed with. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, moving on to another one, the female Cenobite, she's very stylized. She's got wires coming out of her and into her, and she's got a, a gash in her neck, mm. um, yeah, <laughs> which can be taken to mean a couple of different things. She's completely bald, as, uh, as they all are. They all seem to be. Yeah. But there's something still very striking about her. Yes, there is, disturbingly. I think one thing to note as well, particularly with her, is their costumes too. Uh, yeah. The black leather costumes that they've got that Clive Barker said he kind of observed in S&M clubs. I think him using things from the real world blended with the supernatural was a great move. And they have, the Cenobites have a kind of S&M religious butcher outfit, is how I would describe it. Yeah. And it looks cool. It does look very cool, you know. It looks sexy, I guess, in a way. I've got a little quote here from a message Clive Barker wrote to the costume designers, which was, he wanted areas of revealed flesh where some kind of torture has or is occurring, something of associated with butchery involved, repulsive glamour. So that's what they were going for. That's what they got. That is what they got, yeah. I agree. And it's, fe it's very impressive to look at because it's simultaneously horrific and cool yeah and it sort of suggests a religious connotation but not to any known religion no. on well, earth the, the name itself cenobite means one who lives in a religious environment mm. like a monk so there is certainly something religious going on and they do mention hell a couple of times and you think you know is this the christian hell we're talking about or they're quite evasive, aren't they, about what they are? I mean, I love that they say we are angels to some and demons to others. Yeah, you know? yeah. They don't see... The best thing about them, I think, is that they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. They're not evil. No. To them, pain is pleasure. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, was the true horror of watching this film when I first saw it, because it was that someone else could have such a warped perception that they would torture you and think that that was absolutely fine. And in fact, they were doing you a favour. Yeah. Well, the way Frank describes it is p pleasure and pain indivisible, mm. which I've never quite got my head around. And that's the, I mean, but, and that is the whole basis of S&M, yeah. isn't it? I guess. I don't know how into S&M you are, Peter. But. 
I guess that's what it is. I don't know. Yeah. But then later on as well, Frank says something about um, you have to taste the pain. It makes the pleasures all the more sweet. Mm. Something like that. He says that to Kirsty. So that implies maybe that's what they do. They have the pain. And then when they have some pleasure, it seems much nicer because they've stopped being whipped or having chains in their eyes or something. <laughs> so you have an hour of chains in the eyes <laughs> yeah. and then like and then a little hug. Two o'clock. <laughs> a hug. A hug. And you're like, this is, feels amazing. But then at 2.15, you've got the red hot poker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's another, that's a very interesting point because they never explicitly say what happens to you. No. They kind of show bits of it. You get little montages of torture, but they never explicitly say, you know, you go to hell and we do this. No. And that's what makes it frightening. Yes, definitely. And we haven't spoken about the other Cenobite. The, oh, uh, the butterball, butterball Cenobite, Cenobite, as he's referred to in the credits. Yeah, who's a very odd character. He's this big, sort of big, fat... Butterball. Yeah. <laughs> Who uh, wears dark glasses with the whole thing and right until the very end we takes him off and reveals his eyes are sewn shut not quite sure what that represents yeah it's a waste of glasses isn't it it is the point silly really but he seems to be able to see all right yes and he likes licking his lips he does he's quite filthy isn't he i think he's he's supposed to represent someone who has exploded from the inside the camera never really lingers on butterball and so you never really see what he's all about there's just some close-ups of his face and he is pretty disgusting yeah. You certainly wouldn't want him near you. Yeah, I mean, the, their their temperaments are kind of different, aren't they? He kind of hangs back. He's more of a lecherous voyeur. Yeah. And he's he is he does look disgusting, but he doesn't look horrific. So you just you don't want him near you, but you could look at him from a distance. Whereas the chatterer, the chattering Cenobite, he gets straight in there. I mean, when he turns up yeah. to. He holds Kirsty down by putting his two fingers into her mouth straight away. He gets his face, his horrible face, right up close to her. He's like their enforcer, isn't he? He seems he to be. He grabs hold of yeah. people and gets them and goes for them. Yeah, and Butterball is maybe like the bouncer that's stopping people leaving or coming in, maybe. And the lead Cenobite, the pinhead character, he's he's exactly that. He's the one who, who does the talking and the deal-breaking. The female Cenobite does seem to sort of be his right-hand woman it's all open to interpretation isn't it really I guess. it is the only thing that isn't open to interpretation is the fact that he is the lead cenobite because it that's his name Absolutely. so he's certainly in charge he's got the lines he's to got prove it. the lines yeah i think uh we'll talk about this more as we go along with different podcasts but the cenobites evolve over the films very much so yeah and they evolve because of lack of money because of <laughs> creativity of different people because of story constraints a lot of different things evolved them over the time in this first film you don't get any backstory whatsoever about the Cenobites who they are what they do you get very brief glimpses of what happened to Frank yeah which are basically he was hung upside down and (laughs) covered in blood and chained and whipped yes and he loved it or did he or did he well but that's... But no, it is. You're right. It's it's much more terrifying the fact that we don't know who they are and and what they're all about. Instinctively, as a viewer, you always want to know more about what's going on. You know, you want to know more about the characters, and sometimes it, maybe that's not good for you to know. Maybe it's not a good thing that you know exactly when they clock on shift in hell for the chain eyes. Well, another reason why the 
Pinhead character was expanded in the later films was because just how popular he became with the audiences. Mm. People clamoring to see more Pinhead and find out more about Pinhead. So they gave them that. And some, some would say they gave away a bit too much. I agree. Yeah. Because he was so cool in the first one, so unknowable. And they also did, I believe, well, from my perspective, change his personality as the films went on. He does, he does seem to change from film to film to suit the particular story. that. But maybe that's what he does, because he, he is involved in lots of different lives, and he would act differently. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think what I liked about Hellraiser, this film, is that he is, he's not bad. He's patient. He's yeah. doing his job. Yeah. He has no interest in good or evil whatsoever. It doesn't mean anything to him. He's completely amoral. He's kind of reasonable as well. He'll listen He's to reasonable. her. Yeah. And that I find very frightening because you could sit in a room and have a conversation with him, but you, are, you have no point of reference with him because he has no logical belief system. He's just doing what he does. Mm. And I think that's very frightening. And I think maybe in some of the later films, occasionally they made him an out-and-out villain. Uh, they which... did try and turn him into a slasher for a, for a while. Yeah, <laughs> which is, is, you know, that's fine. But I think they had something much more frightening at the beginning. Very well. People are always scared of, of the unknown, of what they don't understand. And, and to look at these Cenobites, they're just completely full of the unknown. You've not seen anything like this before. They're full of it, aren't they? They're absolutely full of it. <laughs> Every single one of them. <laughs> there's one character from hell we haven't talked about yet well there's two actually but who's, one of the big that? ones is the character known as the engineer oh <laughs> <laughs> he's a huge beast that is first introduced when Kirsty opens the box and the the walls of the room she's in open up and reveal hell or a corridor that leads to hell yeah big and long corridor this engineer creature seems to be there almost guarding it he's sort of not letting her in he chases her back out of it it's a weird one isn't it because it's, it's, it's quite ambiguous they open it up for her to come in specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just sits there open so she has no choice but to walk through down this long corridor yeah and then once she's got in far enough he thinks i'm gonna have you and he seems to try and eat her as it were yeah you know he's either trying to catch her and damage her in some way or chase her back out again but he does seem to be wanting to grab her, so I don't think he is chasing her he's out. He's very grabby, isn't and he? And when she gets out and the walls close behind her, he, he's quite unimpressed. <laughs> you can hear him screaming behind the wall still. He did want to get to her. Which is brilliant, because yeah. I like that idea. And I think, again, it's in the book. We'll talk about this another time. Uh, but I think the thing of the Cenobites walking behind the skirting boards of yeah. buildings, you know, they're kind of there behind the scenes. And I love the fact that the wall closes and you can still hear this monster scrabbling at the bricks, trying to get through. They're still there, yeah. Again, unfortunately to reference the book, Frank, when he's in hell, uh, I believe he's stuck in a wall at some point after his tortures yeah, have kind of ended the... for a while. Yeah, in the, that's what they say in the book, because he... He's stuck in the wall of the room he died in, which again in the film is where he comes back into. But in the book, it's very clear that he's stuck looking into this room, yeah. but he can't get there ever again. Which is horrible. Yeah. And that's because they, this is the Cenobites' mercy. They got bored of him. They tortured him and tortured him and tortured him and did everything they could possibly think of to do to him. And then they kind of left him alone. And, but he's always got that feeling that they might come back and he's just left looking into an empty room. For yeah. eternity. And it just so happens that his brother's blood touches the floor 
and allows him to come back into the real world. Lucky. It is lucky. Well, and the Cenobites clearly don't know about this because when Kirsty says to them he's escaped, they say no one escapes us. They just dismiss it. They think she's lying. And they, they will only take him back to hell if he says himself, if he confesses himself. Yeah, they're slack, aren't they, essentially? They are. They're they not seem... doing their job properly. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's amazing because it does hint at, you know, that they've got someone, left him in a room in hell and then gone off doing other stuff. And it's just all hints of, of some kind of world that you keep trying to put human logic on, but you can't. No, but it also implies that, I mean, because hell, the hell you imagine is such a big place, there'll be quite a few different people that these Cenobites have to go around and torment so they can't be with everyone all the time yeah so at some point they do just leave you alone but you have to have solved the box which we haven't yes, spoken about yet we haven't spoken about that let's in a moment we'll go we'll get onto the box in a moment i just want to mention the engineer again yeah because we should probably talk a bit about the actual creature effects but i don't want to i know <laughs> This is one of the only things that looks a little dated now, I think. Yeah. You've got this... Um, it's quite an impressive creature that's been built. Mm. Um, and the way it moves along the wall is very impressive. He's sort of crawling along with his back legs, which are above him. It's, yeah. It's, it's and got he's got like a, a huge, like, stinger. Stinger. Which is very scary. But unfortunately, the head and the front arms are not the best special effects in the world. No. They are a bit poor. I think they were running out of money a bit at this point. I think they were. And the whole scene is still pretty scary and it's still frightening. But yeah, there's just something about his his hands and his face. They're a bit rubbery, aren't they? A bit fake looking. A little. And it's a shame because as soon as the Cenobites turn up, the four Cenobites, that's completely forgotten again because they, their makeup is so good. It's yeah. unbelievable, the makeup. It's just, it looks real. It all looks completely real. And you do forget about the the engineer character until the end of the film, when unfortunately he comes, he turns up again right at the end. Yeah, and that seems, it does seem a little kind of, we've got to have a big kind of, know. you know, at the end. The Cenobites, with all their amazing looks, are vanquished back to hell. And then this... Pretty end, easily. Yeah. Well, with the, with the box, you use the box. Which yeah, which is fair enough, because that's the rules. And um, and then, unfortunately, this engineer puppet turns up again, just briefly. Gets hit in the face with a milk bottle. Doesn't and, stop him. No. And then he disappears in a shower of hand-animated light. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, the only other thing that is slightly dated nowadays, is the um, the animation of, of the when the Cenobites are, are vanquished back into hell. Which, apparently, Clive Barker did a lot of himself the hand he hand drew the animation yeah getting they a bit ran out of money yeah getting a bit drunk with drunk the, the other guy he was doing it with good man it's good for drunk it's very well know. it's for, for a low budget film and bearing in mind they hardly had any money to make this it's even to this day it doesn't look bad it does look a little low budget now that's all but i think nowadays if the film was made nowadays the engineer would be a completely cgi monster and it would probably look worse if anything because it would look completely fake whereas at least this this creature you know is is really there yeah and as i mean as you mentioned the the movement of the top part of the creature where it's kind of slapping its hands against the corridor as it's moving along is really disturbing yeah. it's literally just the bottom bit that's kind of not quite up to scratch and it's not quite up to scratch because the rest of the film is excellent yes you know, absolutely that's the main thing there. And but you watch it now, and, and it might have been a case of maybe just a couple less sh close-up shots of his head and his hands. 
mm. would have would could have done it. But hey, we're not we're not judging. I mean, you did a very good job, Clive. <laughs> it's okay, Clive. It's okay. Um, yeah, I think the whole film still stands up, and I think if you you show it to people who haven't seen it, which I have, and they look at it, they they are still disturbed by what they oh, see. Absolutely, and it's mainly because of the makeup, I think, of the Cenobites. Yeah, and well, and the story and what's going on, and also we haven't spoken of really about Frank's makeup. Which is Frank, stunning. Yeah, Frank the monster. When he's come back and he's half a person and he's exposed, basically. His muscle and flesh is exposed and his skeleton and he's just dripping with goo for the whole thing. Yeah, he's a walking anatomy textbook. He is a exactly. skinless man. Which is kind of what he was based on, I think. Clive Barker, as, as a younger man, was very influenced by textbooks on human anatomy and especially drawings of people with no skin not dead people but you know people a drawing of someone doing something but with no skin on so you can see the inner workings of the body mm. and it's clear that he is enthusiastic about this sort of thing with the the make the way the makeup's done yeah i think the evolution of skinless frank throughout the film is amazing to watch uh, because he starts off almost a corpse and then the more uh, people that Julia kills, puts more flesh on his bones, as he says. Yeah. And you see the layers of muscle building up, the layers of veins building up. And it's just phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. And fantastic Oliver Smith, who played Frank the monster. A fantastic performance. And he, yeah. must, have gone, he must have gone through hell <laughs> to wear all of that. All the time. I remember seeing a brilliant behind-the-scenes photo of him sitting in a chair having a cigarette as Frank. Well, apparently, according to, to Clive Barker, he was so taken by this image of this actor in between takes having a fag that that's why he put the scene in where Frank is having a cigarette. Is that it right? it looks so good, yeah. Wow. And all of a sudden you get this monster, this skinless, dripping monster who's got a shirt on because he's modest, he's a, he's a human after he all. Is. And he's having a cigarette. Which is a, it is a great image. And it, it does make a... you go, ooh, because he looks tender. You know, his yeah. skin looks painful. And then he's having a cigarette. And then, and then later on, he's not just wearing the shirt. He's got a, a jacket on as well. Yeah, a suit, which is a great image as well. The, uh, the sort of skinned man walking around in a suit. The whole design of the costume and the makeup is faultless, I think. Absolutely. And I think it's it's fair to say that pretty much all of that came straight from Clive Barker's head. He's a man who's got an amazing imagination, as you can you can tell when you read his his novels as well and his short stories. But to describe what he wants so well that you end up with these images that we end up with on the in the finished film are so impressive. A lot of directors nowadays, even they just can't get their thoughts across and end up with something that's a bit shoddy. Absolutely, and he was obviously under a lot of time pressure, money pressure. He wanted to direct this film himself, and the vision that comes across is that he didn't let any of this grind him down. He made some really amazing choices, and mm, yeah. his vision came through. We have such sights to show you. Well, not sights, as it's a podcast, but we have such sounds for you to listen to. Hang on, it needs a bit of work. I'll get back to you. Okay, so let's move on to what is possibly one of the most horrific moments in the film, which is nothing to do with the Cenobites, which is where Frank has killed Larry for his skin. He's wearing Larry's skin, and Kirsty comes home knowing that Frank's upstairs, and she's greeted with who she thinks is her dad. 
but he's actually her uncle, her sick and twisted uncle in her dad's skin, who then attempts to woo her. Woo. Shall we say. And this is just absolutely horrendous when you're watching it for the first time. Not even for the first time, every time you watch it. Because we know it's Frank in there, and because she doesn't, you get the impression that he almost gets away with it. Mm. And if he had never said out loud that he was Frank, the Cenobites would have taken Kirsty away, and she would have been gone out of the picture anyway, and Frank in Larry's skin and Julia would have lived happily ever after. It's possible. It is possible. In fact, apparently, when Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty, first met Clive Barker to talk about the film and to sort of audition, he said to her, Okay, your uncle is in your father's skin and he wants to kill you and have sex with you. Tell me how you feel about that. So that was her introduction to the world of Hellraiser. So she never had to worry about what her motivation was. It was always quite clear. (laughs) No, and she didn't have to, and she certainly didn't have any surprises coming. Speaking of Ashley Lawrence, should we talk a bit about the actors in the film? The main, yeah. the main characters. Mm. You've got Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty, who is great, really. I think so. She plays a very feisty, strong female character. She does a very good job portraying vulnerable, but yet incredibly strong at the same time. She comes across as, as real in the situation. She comes across as someone yeah. who's got something about her. And she is her daddy's girl, but she's not as much of a kind of wet fish as her dad. She gets in there, she knows what she's doing, and she won't take any messing around. So speaking of her dad, let's move on to the the actor Andrew Robinson, who plays Larry. Now this is an amazing role for him, because not only does he get to play the wet fish Larry, but then at the end, of course, when Frank's got his skin on, he gets to play Frank. And he's incredibly good at both of these he's great in this film he is excellent he is really i do feel sometimes that i don't like any of the characters in this film for various reasons (laughs) but it's just because they come across as being quite real he's a completely reasonable man he's not doing anything wrong his wife is being extremely strange and he's having to deal with that but he's just a bit of a geek a bit of a goon you know she he's not what she wants and then at other times, I'm really annoyed by the characters. Yeah. Not, not by them as characters, but by their behaviour. And I just think, oh, c- grow up, you know. What are you doing? <laughs> okay, so let's move on to Claire Higgins, who plays Julia. Another very strong female character. Yeah. And she is, again, very, very good in it. She's completely believable. When she first encounters Frank, the monster upstairs, she's just completely overwhelmed and horrified. She's terrified, isn't she? Absolutely. And then, as as soon as, and she finds out who he is, and isn't quite sure how to take it. And after thinking about it for a while, she ends up deciding that she's going to help him and kill for him. I think, yeah, they really handle that well in the film. That she has such a burning desire because they go into the flashback of her meeting Frank for the first time, him seducing her, and that seduction, the sex they had, was so powerful in her life so exciting that she can never forget about it no and, and she's now in this, her marriage yeah she's in this completely passionless relationship now she gets to the, the very beginning she turns up at the house and she doesn't like it at all she doesn't want to stay there as soon as she finds out that frank's been there recently she changes her tune completely and she wants to stay because he offers something really dangerous yeah. and that's what's shown in their sex you know it's kind of dangerous it's bad there's knives involved you know well, apparently the sex scene was a lot more dangerous originally the mpaa had a bit of a problem with it and so they had really? to turn it down a little. Oh. 
But yeah, I think that's, and she plays that so well in this film. The yearning, the kind of, oh, you know, she has these kind of depths. She seems, she comes across as a very cold woman in the film, but she has these kind of depths of passion. And she kills these men and she gets to enjoy it, I think. Yeah, she does. The she first kind one, of likes it. It's the first one really repels her and she's not into it at all By she plays it, that exactly i think as you would do if you just killed someone i know she does it's excellent it's very impressive the performance is very impressive it's a very shakespearean performance mm. when she she completely becomes lady macbeth yeah absolutely i think the style of the film is very theatrical and it i is. think well, the performances ag- are as well again clive barker was from a very theatrical background he'd p- written and directed lots of plays prior to this film yeah so I imagine, I imagine when they rehearsed, it was a very theatrically based rehearsal in which they really went into detail of, of who the characters were, what the relationships were and all that sort of thing. And when they came to film it, you can totally see that. They all know exactly who they are, what they're doing there, what their motivation is and what they feel about all the other characters. Absolutely. And they're not afraid to really go for it in a kind of technical acting way when there'll be a lot of shots where it will be just a shot of the character's face mm. as they realize something. And they really do give you a, a theatrical realization. You know, you can really see what's going on, but yeah. it's not over the top and it's not no. cheesy. It's it's real and it's heightened. It is. Yeah, that's that's a good word. It is heightened. It's it's it still feels very natural. The whole film feels very natural, but it is a heightened naturalism. Yeah. Whereas a lot of other horror films are just the script is banged out and then the actors just turn up, say the lines and go home again. Whereas this is clearly a well thought out story, a very well thought out and written script. And the lines are being performed by very intelligent actors who know exactly why they're saying each line. Yep. So there's one more actor we should talk about probably. And that is Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead or the lead Cenobite in the film. He's really good in this film, and the fact that the makeup is so intense and big, and the fact that you can still get a really subtle performance from him through it is really impressive, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to his performance in this film, and he's just really good. He brings a real gravitas and a real, I don't know, a real air of otherworldliness, and he's working very hard to get those emotions out through all of this rubber that's stuck on his head, basically. Yeah, definitely. And apparently when he first got offered the job, he had a choice between whether to play the lead Cenobite or play the Delivery Man 1 that was eventually played by another of Clive Barker's friends, Oliver Parker. And he very nearly chose to be the Delivery Man because he knew that his face would be seen and he wouldn't be buried under loads of makeup. And I think he's probably quite pleased now that he chose to be Pinhead. Yeah, I think I would be massively happy that I'd chosen that role. (laughs) Yes, me too. Right, let's move on to something that we mentioned earlier on that we would talk about, and that is the box. This seems to be the key to the portal to hell. Yeah. The first time we see the box is the very opening shot of the film where Frank is buying this in some foreign location. Very atmospheric. Very atmospheric. Dingy. uh, Yeah, and he seems to be paying a lot of money for it. And the guy... Who's selling it to him is very mysterious. He's a a couple of lines, and he's, you know, yes, very strange. His motivations are a bit unknowable. Yeah, he's an unknown quantity completely, and Mm. we we still we know the wiser now, really, as to who that is. Yeah, and he appears at the end of the film again with the box again. Yeah, it's a completely circular narrative when it comes to the box. The box is given to Frank. It's used to take him to hell. It seems to come back to the real world with him when he. Is that what's implied, or is it still in the room, do you think? I think it's supposed to be still in the room, but 
I don't know. Because if that's the case, we're implying that whenever this box is used and the the person opening it is sucked down to hell, the box itself just stays there and is just there for anyone to find and pick up. Well, I think, as it shows at the end of the film, um, the box has agents that get it back to the people to put it in someone else's hands. Yeah. One of the agents being a large skeletal dragon. <laughs> yes, which is the only other thing that looks slightly dated <laughs> now. But this time, luckily, he um, decided to show very little of it because because it was so low budget. And it's a very good little dragon skeleton they come up with. And it seems to be this weird tramp character that's following them around for the whole film, following Kirsty around for the whole film. And he turns up at the end, picks up the box from a fire and sets himself on fire and turns into a dragon skeleton and flies off with the box. Yeah, which implies that he's been watching all the time yeah. to see what happens with the box. And once the box is finished, once the story has played out, he's going to take the box, because he's an agent of hell, back to the guy who sells the box to people in the beginning mm. and it will find its way into someone else's hands and thus a steady stream of people will keep going through the Cenobite's clutches. Absolutely. So this box is a puzzle box. You have to solve it to open it and it's only opening the box that gives you the access to the pleasures of heaven or hell, which is what people seem to think they're going to get when they come across this box. Frank, the character in the film... He's trying to seek the limits of pleasure. He's bored with sex, he's bored with drugs, he's bored with everything, and he wants to go to the very outer reaches. And this box is talked about in these underground circles, yeah. and that's what it's going to give you. He's but heard about the you box. you don't know, you ain't going to like what it's going to be. No, I think you. Uh, most people who open the box are not regretting it. It's implied in this first film that whoever opens the box, no matter if they meant to or not, is going to be taken to hell, as yes. happens with Kirsty. Which, again, I like. Because yeah, me I, too, yeah. I don't think the box is a very moral tool. You know, if you buy this thing and you solve it and it's a puzzle box, you are going to be tortured for eternity. <laughs> and there's no morals about that. There's no good or evil. The other thing about the box as well that I like, and again, is it's it's vague like the Cenobites. It's abstract. Um, it never really shows exactly what you have to do to solve the box. Uh, there's certain movements that people do in all the different films that, that match. Uh, and lots of uh, fan fiction and yeah. things like that have sort of gone into what you might actually have to do to solve the box, but you never really know. I think that's that's mainly in case anyone finds one of these boxes, doesn't show you how to open it. It'd be very irresponsible for the filmmakers to show people how you could open a box. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and the other important thing about the box, as it's shown at the end of the film, is it can be used to send the Cenobites back to hell if you've summoned them. It does seem, though, as you mentioned earlier on, that Kirsty is able to quite easily get rid of the Cenobites. Yeah. Once she's realised that she's got this box and she can use it, its power, she does seem to be able to dispatch them pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, she knows what to do and she just twists it and, and off they go. That's yeah. it. Which does seem to be a flaw in the design of the box. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame for them that they can turn up and then if if the person who some of them doesn't like them, they can just give it a bit of a twist and they'll go back to hell again. I think actually that's a very interesting point that you make there and this would lead me to one of the bits of the at the end of the film that I think um, where film versus book is a little bit difficult in that the creatures, the Cenobites, have a physical form and at the end of the film they're they're there, they're in the house but the way that the film works, there has to be a scene where they're in a room 
then things happen. They are disappeared for a bit, and then they appear again later on. Uh, they can be stopped by like a piece of roof falling on their head, and so on and so forth. That's a, yeah, that is a good point because when Kirsty first summons them, they just appear out of thin air. Yeah, it seems that they have the power to choose yeah, they, how they, they appear and where they appear. And like you said later on in the house, they they just appear again all of a sudden out of nowhere. They seem to have the power to teleport, whereas at the end they don't have the power to not be sent back to hell from with the power of the box. And even the butterball cenobite, as you mentioned, a bit of the house falls on him. Yeah, I which mean, does that mean? Him. Is he still there? Is he under the rubble? Could, did he? Did he get sent back? Yeah, or he might. Could they have, have... a spin-off? <laughs> Butterball, <laughs> Butterball, the, the and, and Co. Yeah, it's a new sitcom. Or could he have teleported just before he was crushed? Like they seem to be able to teleport because he doesn't get summoned back, sent back to hell. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't like to sort of nitpick about things like this um, because I think the films like this are very um, visual and uh, it's a feeling more than anything else. Although you say that, I think of all of the Hellraiser films, this is the one we can nitpick because you get the feeling Clive Barker has sat down and thought about every single little thing that happens in it. I think, I guess, what it is is that uh, they can instantly summon hooks on chains to come from the shadows, whereas when Kirsty is about to twist the box to get rid of Pinhead. He stands in front of her, very close to her, mm-hmm. and says, no, don't do that. But he seems to have no power over her because she has the box in her hands. Is Which that what's implied? Imply- yeah, it is implying that. I think it's implying that the box has such... It's implying that they have a lot of respect for the box. And they they seem powerless when the box is being wielded as a weapon. Yeah, but yet they're still trying to kill her. But like you said, if they could, they would. Yeah, that's it. I guess that's it. That's the only. That's the only kind of stuff. Yeah, that the, you can... the the box is incredibly as an incredibly powerful tool. One final thing that I would like to talk about before we go is the music to the film. Yeah, the score by Christopher Young. It's incredible. Amazing. It's clear that if this film had an amateurish score or soundtrack, it wouldn't be anywhere near as impressive as it is. Absolutely, the power of the music when it comes in, when it kicks in is huge this the soundtrack to this film is is utterly brilliant it's a an orchestra a proper orchestral score that that they want to go for it's not pop music it's not 80s style music which a lot of the films at the time went for and nowadays you look back and and they suffer slightly Mm. because they went for an orchestral score for hellraiser it's timeless absolutely and not only is it timeless it is also brilliant and it is scary and if you can get hold of the the soundtrack on cd or to download i would highly recommend it to just to listen to it as as an album because it is a wonderful piece of music yeah it still frightens me now um (laughs) whatever you say about the clothes dating or you know one says about the clothes dating or things changing in the film the music is terrifying and it makes you think of very you know strange weird things crazy houses that are empty (laughs) and stuff very very good and also really works with the theatricality of the film i think because certain scenes the way that they're played the heightened nature of the scenes um require that kind of music over the top to make it all work yeah so that you never think hmm well this is she's being a bit strange there you know you really go with it all the time 
And I would say as well, um, the sound throughout the film is amazing. Yes, I was going to say that as well. Yeah. The sound design is phenomenal. You've got really odd things going on in the background to make you uncomfortable. There's a lot of bird flapping, flapping of wings. Yeah. Kirsty keeps having the recurring noise of a baby crying when she's having dreams Which is or going horrible. to hell. And they use that to great effect. And any shots of maggots, there's a very strong maggoty rustling squidgy sound going on yeah i think anything that they really want to bring your attention to i mean it's done in all films but in this film it really works they really bring the sound up when you've got blood splattering on the floor yeah. you can really hear yeah. it splattering it's very loud in the mix and it's really really effective and there's a great bit near the beginning when julia first walks into the room where frank went to hell and he's not returned yet in the background in the sound mix you've got all these voices the whispering voices and it's, in, it's sort of implying that she can sort of hear these a bit, and it's the voices behind the wall. And all of a sudden they start to go, Julia, Julia. Yeah. And it's really freaky because it's, she's been called into this room. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, as you say, the bird flapping, which accompanies the tramp whenever yeah. he comes, yeah. which is a great thing. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what I'm talking about with the imagery. It all ties together. And this kind of crazy tramp is walking around. You don't know what his deal is. He looks quite ominous. There's this flapping of bird's wings. And then he eventually turns out to be this flying skeletal dragon. You know, it's yeah. sort of, yeah. it all kind of ties together in a, in a kind of realistic way, apart from the skeletal dragon, but you know <laughs> what I mean. Um, and it's excellent. As you said, the whole sound design of the whole film is incredible. And if you listen to this, which I have done, if you listen to it on headphones, you get so many little subtle things that you don't see when you're just watching it on a television and, and the sound's going into the room. I'd love to see... I'd love, I've never seen Hellraiser on the big screen in a cinema, and I would absolutely love to. Yeah, absolutely. That would be fantastic. With a, yeah, with the inner cinema, with a good sound system and surround sound going on. Well, we'll let you know as soon as we've manage to find it somewhere in London or the surrounding areas of the UK, we will go and see it and we will let you know what we thought. <laughs> I bet we'll like it. I reckon we'll like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's about it for our first episode of the Hellraiser podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great for us to chat about it and give some of our thoughts and feelings. Yeah, we are both huge fans of the series. We're massive huge. Hellraiser fans. And we know there are a lot of other fans out there, so... If you've enjoyed this and you know people who like Hellraiser films, do pass this podcast along, get them listening to it. We've got a website that we're working on at the moment that's on its way. But in the meantime, we do have an email address where you can write to us, which is hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk. So if you've got any feedback, then please send it to that address. And if you anything you'd like us to talk about, or if you disagree with anything we've said, then please send it in to us. Yeah, absolutely. We just want to sort of create a bit of a place where Hellraiser fans can get together, talk about things, talk about their own ideas about the film series and anything else to yeah. do with Hellraiser. So thanks again for listening. There'll hopefully be episode two coming up shortly where we're going to be talking about Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. But in the meantime, I've been Peter. And I still am Phil. He still is. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you soon. Thank you. We now return to the Butterball & Co. Thanksgiving special. Oh, Butterball.